It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Let me bring your own head, beat it up, and I've seen that no sheets. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Hey, why are we in a fire? This is the southern gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave a jury, beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. I'm Joe Alton, MD, and I'm a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, a fellow of the American College of OBGYN. Amy is? A certified nurse midwife and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. That's right, and together we are the founders of doomandbloom.net, and we have, gosh, over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. It's all about survival medicine, what to do in austere settings. We're the authors of the Book Excellence Award winner in Medicine, the Survival Medicine Handbook. Now it is the 700-page third edition. Our latest book is Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, A Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. And we design an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Oh, we're also contributors to American Survival Guide, Survivor's Edge. We have contributed to Backwoods Home. I was just going to mention right. that since I just talked about I just got my recent issue for Backwoods Home about uh, two days ago. Yeah, that's right. Just came in the mail. We love that magazine also. Yes, yeah, so we're big supporters of Dave Duffy and his family. And I love that you guys describe your credentials, and it's certainly not in an egotistical way because people listening need to know when it comes to a topic as important as medicine and health, that they're not dealing with, like, my cousin who, like, went to high school and took a health class and mm-hmm. feels, you know, qualified. Talk about these. When it comes to personal finance and medical stuff, those are two times credentials are really important. So you guys are listening to The Real Deal. Obviously, their books are amazing. Just go onto their website and, and get them. Well, the topic um, we wanted to, to start off with was pandemic. And I wanted to ask you guys, what is a pandemic? You know, I get that question a lot, and a lot of people just aren't sure what the difference is between a pandemic and an epidemic. Now, both are instances where an infectious disease goes out of control. But let's start with some definitions. I need the people out there to know what we're talking about. An epidemic is a sudden and widespread outbreak, I'm reading this, of an infectious disease in a community that is not there all the time. And so influenza is a pretty good example of this. It arrives suddenly in seasonal ways. It's usually at least slightly different genetically from its predecessors. So that would qualify as an epidemic. Now, it's still influenza, but the virus, depending on what year it is and what the genetic mutations have been, viruses mutate frequently and rapidly. The virus might act more or less aggressive based on how it mutates. 
Now, a pandemic, now that occurs when an epidemic of an infectious disease runs rampant throughout a large region, or in the case of the great Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, the entire world. Another pandemic epidemic was uh, the Zika virus. Zika virus started in Asia, then it went to French Polynesia, and then uh, I think in 2016 ended up in South America. So those are pandemic diseases. Now, if you compare this with Ebola, for example, that stayed in West Africa. And although there were some cases that ended up in other countries, including in the U.S., there was no community-wide outbreak of it anywhere else. And note that both of these, both epidemic and pandemics, are different from diseases that are endemic. An endemic disease, very few people have heard of this, is a disease that's constantly found among a particular population in or in a certain area. So uh, malaria, malaria, for example, is endemic in many tropical countries. It's not new to the area. It's always there. Cases are constantly being reported. Now, if malaria outbreaks occurred in New York City or Toronto, well, that would be an epidemic because it's not something that's usually seen there. Yeah, and there are so many um, novels and even movies out there about a pandemic as a collapse or not even a collapse. I use that word too loosely as uh, a really bad thing, an SHTF moment. I mean, how big of a threat is pandemic? And let's keep it limited to the United States. Um, since almost all our listeners are in the United States and almost all of your listeners are in the United States listening to this, um, you know, how big of a threat is it? Is this like a meteor strike that we kind of can disregard a little bit because it's so unlikely? Um, are we due for a pandemic might be a better way of asking this. Well, you know, the threat of pandemic is always there. We've had all sorts of pandemics off and on just in the last decade. I'll talk a little bit about those. The thing is, is that it's so easy using commercial air travel these days to get people to faraway places in just a few hours. The Ebola case, for example, that ended up going from Liberia to Dallas you know, over the course of a day, that wound up infecting two nurses in a Texas hospital. And that woke up the United States to the threat of pandemics. So it makes it less likely that we're going to be caught unawares. Before that Ebola case showed up in Dallas, we had only 19 isolation beds in the entire country that could handle a disease as deadly and contagious as Ebola was. Most hospitals have made contingency plans. Now they can, can convert entire wards to isolation units. So pretty much any large hospital will be able to handle a major, well, I hope, major isolation event at this point. What disease is going to be the most likely candidate to cause the next pandemic? The answer depends on the level of attention that we wind up placing on prevention. There are all sorts of pandemics in the past, with plague, typhoid, typhus, cholera, we'll talk about those later. There's still very real possibilities, especially in areas that have limited access to modern medicine, maybe not in the U.S. so much, but, for example, after the earthquake in Haiti, there was a massive cholera pandemic. Currently in Los Angeles, the homeless over there, it's a terrible problem. They have issues with uh, typhus. They have issues with even a couple of cases, I think, of plague being found. As a matter of fact, just yesterday in China, they had a couple of cases of plague as well. So these are all some of the classic pandemic-type diseases that could easily wind up going to places like the United States. But we have now antibiotics for these bacterial diseases, we talk about them in our book a lot, that can nip infections in the bud. That decreases the risk for them, but will antibiotics be available in large enough quantities to deal with a true pandemic outbreak where communities all over the country are wind up getting attacked by this, just like the Spanish flu? You know, there was a big military buy of the antibiotic doxycycline 
less than a decade ago, I think it was about eight years ago or so, and it caused such a shortage that the FDA actually put out an emergency use authorization for doxycycline tablets and capsules that were several years expired. They, used, they said, you can indeed take them, they'll still be effective. This is why I wrote the first articles on fish and bird antibiotic released by a physician all those years ago, because I felt the general population needed better access to these life-saving drugs and should have, every prepper out there should have a source of antibiotics. I don't sell antibiotics, but they should have a source of antibiotics. Uh, Thomas Labs is a popular distributor of these in fish and avian form. I wanted to emphasize why this is a problem, and it's bigger, obviously, than people just getting sick. And I don't mean to to downplay that, um, you know, people would be dying from whatever the disease is, but obviously the problem is far bigger than that. You've got people that are not going to leave their homes, which makes sense, which means you're not going to have police officers going to work, which creates a bunch of problems everyone can imagine. You're going to have um, the water treatment facility engineers and all those other people not being able to go to work and treat water supplies truck drivers i mean they're driving around they're they're interacting with people all over the place truck drivers would be out of their minds to get in their cab and go stop and you know be in nine cities or truck stops in a day and have all this disease so the truck stopped flowing so as with so many prepping uh threats or uh, things that can cause a collapse it's it's not the actual thing that is the problem. It's all the after effects. It's all the ripples. It's the second and third order effects of people not going to work. That obviously has a huge economic impact. So that's what we're talking about. And and obviously you would need to have medical information and hopefully supplies to be able to treat your own family or maybe small community from this stuff. But this is bigger than just some people down the street getting sick. And what I'm hearing, and I'm just going to throw this out there because I know it'll help keep this conversation going, is sort of the best part of prevention of these things is the will and the and the, and the and I think about some of the political things that have happened in some of our past epidemics. I'm thinking of bird flu and flu. I'm thinking of um, honestly Ebola and um, how those decisions from policymakers and leaders affected the ability to stop it and to prevent spread. And so I, I always think of myself, I don't want to be dependent on somebody in an office far away to keep me from being sick. So that's, that's my prepping mindset. But I, I know Dr. Bones and Ursini have some more thoughts on this, and we want to keep that chain of thought going. So go for it. All right. Well, I wanted to talk about what I think might be more likely to happen. It's very possible that with some of these bacterial diseases we talked about in the last segment, that we'll be able to nip them in the bud with uh, enough antibiotics if we're able to produce them in the quantities that are necessary to stop all, a bunch of community-wide outbreaks. But I think the next pandemic is going to be viral. Ebola, that was a, a major epidemic in West Africa. The question is whether the organism that causes it can live outside certain climates. In other words, can Ebola take hold in places like Minnesota or Toronto, for example. You mentioned, I think, uh, bird flu. That's a virus that could be an issue. Uh, sudden acute respiratory sy uh, syndrome, that's known as SARS. That was an issue in the Far East some years ago. Uh, in the Middle East, there was Middle East respiratory syndrome. That's a lethal disease that's related to SARS. That's a, a problem in Middle Eastern countries that employ Asian foreign workers, like a big issue in Saudi Arabia with people getting MERS from apparently Korean uh, workers that go there on a regular basis. We've also had 
a number that have crossed the pond, the number of viral diseases that have turned into pandemics that have crossed the pond just in the last few years. There was a virus called chikungunya that was carried by mosquitoes from Africa to uh, South America and to and pretty much all the tropical areas, even subtropical areas in South Florida. That ranged far and wide over the Caribbean in 2014 and 15. That was pretty bad because it caused stomach problems and other issues. It sometimes took months to recover from. As a matter of fact, in the midst of this pandemic in the Dominican Republic, there was a 13% absentee weight throughout the entire country over a course of about a month. 13% of your workers don't get to work. Exactly. It rarely affects the economy. That actually is proving out what Glenn was talking about. And I just want to mention to both of you and those listening that, that that is actually what started Joe and I prepping. 10 years ago in a serious, serious fashion. We had always been preppers. My dad was in the Air Force. His mother lived through um, the Depression and you know some problems with hunger. And so he kind of learned from her to store things away. And then through the Air Force, he learned a lot of you know skills that he passed on to my, my brother and I. And then we lived in South Florida for a long time with the threat of hurricanes. So every season, you have to get flashlights and batteries and tents and extra food and and those kind of things. So we always had those things. But about 10 years ago, one of these viral problems came through and Joe and I started thinking exactly what you said, Glenn. It's not the disease so much. And yes, people will die and get sick. It's that we won't have our society functioning as it is functioning now. The grocery stores won't get filled up. Exactly like you said, the truckers won't be traveling. It's just going to shut down so many things, which will cause things to get so much worse. It won't be just about trying to get rid of the virus. It's going to be trying to get society back on its feet again. And even after we can control the virus, which hopefully we would be able to, it might work its way through this country and perhaps the world because of our travels. But getting back on our feet, if we've lost a lot of people, we don't have the workers, um, right. it's going to take a while. You know, we don't have the farmers. Maybe the food, the crops have died because nobody could take care of them. There's so many consequences, and it could take years and years for us to get back on our feet. For Ebola, for, for Ebola it was the loss of so many medical workers because of the major contagion of the virus itself. It was so virulent, it was, it was so strong in terms of its ability to uh, infect other people that it killed a lot of the medical workers that indeed were trying to, trying help, to others. help people. Right. right. With uh, chikungunya, it, it affected the workers. Right. And so it affected the economy that way. Then you had Zika virus in 2016, which affected newborns uh, in Brazil, oh, at least. so horrible. Uh, and that is another oh. pandemic that was an issue. But I think the highest risk, the, the pandemic disease that's going to get us is going to be influenza and what Stephen King calls the superfood, one that really genetically mutates, be just like the, the Spanish flu, and really kill a lot person of Person to folks. person to person. All you have to be is kind of in the same vicinity. Right. And, two, and you can get it. In 2009, the swine flu epidemic killed 200,000 people. Anything that's going to be airborne is going to be that's a big it. issue. And we, the thing. And we're identifying various new influenza strains every year. So influenza is mutating, mutating rapidly and more just rapidly, a matter of time. More rapidly than anyone understands. I've read things where scientists have, 
have watched these and they've seen mutations within hours. I mean, I hate to say these things are smart because they don't have brains, but somehow they're figuring out how to conquer their environment. Whatever we throw at them, they're figuring out how to get around it. So that's the issue. They want to survive. There's just some instinct in living things, including plants, that, that they figure out and mutate how to survive. They want to take over. The viruses have a desire somehow to take over everything and be everywhere. And this is the problem. And I don't know that we can fight them forever. Well, here's a question. Are, are we due for one? Sort of like with earthquakes here in the Pacific Northwest, they always say a 9.0 earthquake happens about every 300 years and we're about 50 years overdue. Um, are we sort of overdue for a big pandemic or are the conditions so much different from, say, the Spanish flu of whatever, 1918 or so, 100 years ago, that, you know, maybe pandemics aren't as big of a deal? I mean, are we due for one? What do you guys think? I think that I think we're we're worse off. I think the fact that they weren't able to fly across the entire world from one side to the other in, you know, less than a day. If somebody gets on a plane full of 300 people who didn't realize they had just been exposed hours earlier and this virus starts shedding into the air systems and to just people around them, even if it's, if they have good scrubbers on those airplanes that get rid of viruses, just the people around them. And then those people a few hours later start shedding some virus. That entire plane may disembark and nobody even knows they're sick yet. And then they go off, those 300 people. I think we're so much worse. In the Spanish flu, it traveled because of people moving from town to town. So it would go to a town, and then it would go to another town. This time, we can literally spread this throughout the entire world, I feel, within a few days, honestly. If it's really, really contagious, it will not take long. And then we will be so overwhelmed. The hospitals will be overwhelmed. We will not have enough medicine in many, many places in the world. The government might have it, but the rest of us folks won't. And the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed, and we're all going to be stuck at home. I think we're much worse off now. And that's why I think it's going to be viral, because we have now great antibiotics that can handle a lot of different bacterial issues, including a lot of the diseases that were pandemic in the past. But... We still are in the infancy of dealing with viruses with medicine. I know. We can't even cure the common cold. That's right. You know? It's so simple, but it's complicated. And that's why the Spanish flu was such a big issue back then. They didn't have antibiotics back then, but they also didn't have antivirals. And there was nothing that really stopped the flu from from spreading. And how much Tamiflu are we really going to have? And most countries don't have stockpiles. And even our country who has stockpiles. You know who's going to get it? The politicians. Those are who are going to get it. The ones that are down in the bunkers are going to get this Tamiflu, not us, up here. But you don't feel strongly. On the surface. But you don't feel strongly about I it. I feel very strongly <laughs> about it. Don't get me started. Oh. I actually personally. Well, you, wait, wait, I just want to say one thing. I actually personally sorry. wrote to the CEO of the company. I don't remember the pharmaceutical company who produces Tamiflu. An angry letter. In fact, I'm surprised people in black suits didn't show up in front of my house 
telling him that they need to up their production of Tamiflu because I know his family's going to live, but the rest of us are going to end up dying if you don't get this out. This was 10 years ago. And nobody showed up yet, but, you know. Well, and you just, Nurse Amy, you just hit the nerve that I, I was I, I touched on a little bit as we came into this segment of the show. And we, we have, oh, we got lots of time to talk about this. Um, lights me up about this very issue is because the health of the general population during times of these epidemics that we've seen in the news in the last 10 to 15 years becomes a political issue. I got really, I remember when um, you hit it, the SARS flu was going around and um, how the political culture at the time, I'll say this, limited air travel because of what you just spoke about. Um, flights were canceled because the movement of people spread this disease and I would and and it everybody got inconvenienced and it was not cool and people got mad but you know what it kept that disease from being worse than it was so I remember that happening now did it happen as much as it should that's for others to decide what really took me is a few years ago when the Ebola crisis was going on and our politicians you just said it in charge were like hey we're not shutting down Flights. We're going to let people come and move and go into the United States, out of the United States, to and from these countries, from this disease that you don't even know you have it. And then within hours, you are suddenly bleeding internally, uncontrollably. And that's what frustrates me is that we have people who are politically motivated, making health decisions for innocent people because of these things. And so that's when I say to myself, I am not going to let these sorts of people be in charge of my health. I will control my movements. I will control who comes into my environment. And if somebody from West Africa, like this is never going to happen. If somebody from West Africa during an outbreak of Ebola, they're going to be told to leave very quickly and um, very forcefully. Because of that, I get to control that. But we also, this is what I love about you guys is that, all right, if they're going to, this is our time now to stockpile things like what you just said. Tamiflu is so important. We need to be in charge of our health now. And we have the opportunity before things get really crazy, to stockpile our own personal stash so that we aren't dependent on a government or on a CEO of a company to provide this for us. And so I wanted to see what your thoughts are. It, it's because I have because I want to do I do want to talk about the homeless crisis because I think that's another version of this. We have policymakers who are making really um, weak decisions in how to take care of the homeless crisis, but we have cholera and typhus and TB now spreading through big city communities that are extremely contagious and extremely deadly, and they're taking a very weak stance on the seriousness of this. So I'm going to just let you take pick any one of those topics. I Thank you, Nurse Amy, for lighting me on fire over here, but I'd like to know your thoughts on that, because I think that's the current conditions we're in, right? You're, you're absolutely right, and I'm going to let uh, Joe talk about that in just a second, but um, I, I do want to tell you that I was so fired up when they were allowing these flights to come in and out of these countries that they knew just was loaded with this problem, loaded with it. And they, they still allowed it. it. It infuriated me. So, you know, I have no problem shutting down the airplanes. I'm sorry if it's inconvenient for people who want to fly from the, you know, pandemic area to, to our country, but sorry, folks, we need to protect our citizens. And, and I would like to see more of that happen if we have something that's seriously contagious. Now, this is very, very controversial. I wrote an article specifically advocating a travel ban from the West African countries that had Ebola yeah, I remember that. back then. And 
I'll tell you, it didn't sit well with some people. I lost 300 followers on Twitter. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. You know what? Good riddance. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's, the that's, that's the thing. They, Sorry. They, you know, that, that it's somehow unreasonable. Well, to... let, let the little flowers go wilt away somewhere else. <laughs> okay. All right, let's talk about the homeless problem. I think right. this is a big, big problem. And they can't get their you-know-what together over there. But Yeah, you know, about, about 40% of the people in California live below the poverty line. And there are more and more homeless, it seems, every day over there. And there, We traveled to uh, Los Angeles for a talk uh, some, uh, well, gosh, uh, been, a, few, a few years we've ago. We've been there a couple we took of times. We've been San Francisco. We took a wrong too. turn and oh. ended up in a, a, a homeless, I don't know, village. It was before there were iPhones and GPS. It was many years ago. But, but... Three of the kids were under 18. They were young, and two of them were, were just a little bit over that. But I have five kids in the back of this SUV. I don't really know where I'm going. We don't have GPSs. We have maps. Okay, you guys remember maps? <laughs> so I yeah. turned the wrong way into the, the heart of the worst area in L.A. that you could possibly imagine. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of homeless people, but they were like 10 deep in the sidewalks on both sides. And they're looking at this woman who does not belong in that area. And they were eyeing us and it was very scary. And it was that bad 18 years ago. It was, wow, that yeah, it was like maybe goodness. just before we got married. Can you married. imagine what it's like now? Yeah, but it was bad back then. So I can't imagine what's happening now. Well, I mean, what's happening now is that some of the old-time classic infectious diseases that caused so many deaths in the past are because of poor sanitation and poor hygiene showing up in and among the homeless population in Los Angeles. And I'm sure also it's a problem in San Francisco, although I haven't read much about that, but I guarantee you that it is a problem in the big cities all over California. And uh, cholera is one of them. That's something that has happened, that is there have been a couple of cases that typhus. Well, I think how to prep for them, because as I understand it, and, and if I'm wrong, go ahead and, you know, gently tell me so. But there are some very easy to prepare for things here. Um, anti-diarrheals, maybe pills, um, anti-mucus sorts of things. They may not they may not absolutely um, uh, treat somebody who has cholera. But it could lessen effects. And then, of course, having clean water and clean food and everything, that's a given. But, yeah, how to prep for it? Because my my approach to this is there are some easy, inexpensive ways um, to prepare for this that will do you a whole lot of good and for not a lot of money and not a lot of time. And it doesn't take up storage space and all those kind of things. So You got it. Well, you know, besides having a good supply of antibiotics, for example, to deal with some of these classic bacterial diseases that we described in uh, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, you just need a brain, basically, to get started planning out an epidemic sick room. I think that anybody that can start by just thinking about the possibility of an epidemic, accepting that it can happen, and that they may need to take measures for it. I mean, I think that's a great first step, whether it's in a tent, in, in a bug out location or a room in their house. That doesn't mean that I expect to come to your place tomorrow and see it all set up. I mean, just that you have a strategy together and begin to accumulate the supplies. In outbreaks of infectious disease, the challenge for the medic is healing the sick while preventing contagion in the healthy, right? So to succeed, a sick room has to be chosen 
as the place where the infected can rest and recover while not being in contact with those that are not ill. It should be possible to put together a sick room that will minimize the chance of infectious disease running rampant throughout the entire family or a survival group if you're, you're bugging out. The sick room, very simple, should be away from the common areas. It should be not near where food is being prepared. It should not be in the family room or near the family room where people are, are gathered. But it should be well lit. It should have good ventilation. Good lighting is going to make it easier for the medic to monitor physical signs. The ventilation helps decrease the concentration of bacteria and other pathogens in the air, so that's really important. And you need to have a barrier, a barrier, a door or other barrier, even if it's just plastic sheeting. That is something that's very important to separate the sick from the healthy. And depending on the total space that's involved, you want to keep the sick room as far away from your daily traffic as you can. And the furnishings in it, very simple, minimalist, a work surface, an exam area, bed spaces, no fabric surfaces, no carpets. These are things that can harbor pathogens or disease-causing organisms and should be avoided if at all possible. And even bedding might be best be covered in plastic if you're in a truly bad situation with a really contagious That's disease. That's what I was just going to say. Hard surfaces, like hard tables, um, and then wrap all your bedding and pillows, anything that might absorb things with uh, plastic. There's all kinds. Even at Walmart has plastic bedding. That's waterproof. You, the allergy ones that you can zip up, some of those are waterproof also. So you can zip the entire mattress. So keep any kind of fabrics away. Even if you're going to use blankets, try to use 100% cotton so you can throw a little bleach in the, in the hot water when you're washing them. Right. You also have to have a way to eliminate waste products from people that are sick. In most cases, just immersing the, the waste in a container with some bleach, that may be sufficient. But for extremely contagious diseases, some actually suggest burning this stuff. And, well, I don't know if that's going to be necessary. It just depends on just how bad things are. Now, I will tell you the items that you're going to need. I want you to have disinfectants like household bleach, rubbing alcohol, tincture of iodine. These are things that are important. I want you to have buckets that you can remove this waste from and other trash that needs to be disposed of that might be infected. You need a work table and a chair. You need some bedding. You need utensils that are dedicated specifically for those that are sick, plastic sheeting I just mentioned, and you should have some, a hand basin with soap and hand sanitizers and personal protection gear. That's very important. Personal protection gear and, and maybe biohazard bags. Our, our personal protection gear kit has biohazard bags in it, and so it's something that I think is very important. So what I want you to do is right outside the barrier that you have put together, I want a station with masks, gloves, gowns, aprons, disinfecting materials. This is going to be something that's going to be very important. You don't want to start protecting yourself, putting on protection gear. After you've gotten into the room with the sick person, you want to have that on beforehand. So a basin with water, soap, other disinfectant, towels that should be kept for exclusive use by the caregiver. And uh, by the way, with regards to the caregiver, there should be only one person involved in caring for the sick, if at all possible. You don't want too many people exposed because that increases the likelihood that somebody's going to get sick. One in interesting item that people don't think about with regards to putting together a sick room is just to simply have a noisemaker, like a, a whistle or something like that. Many sick patients are just too weak to call out, and a noisemaker of some sort 
is going to allow you to know when you're needed. It also gives some assurance that are in, in the sick room that they're not ignoring, though you can't always be in the room with them. As a matter of fact, probably not a good idea to be always in the room with them. You know, I'm going to add one more thing that we've talked about in the, in the past that you don't really think is a prepping item, is a UV light. Now, they have a, a couple of companies make them with batteries. So, you know, we think, oh, well, you, don't, you might not have electricity. But most people are going to be storing batteries. Now, these UV lights um, tend to be marketed for bed bugs. And they're small ones that you can put in your luggage and take with you to your hotel room and battery spend an hour. <laughs> there, no, there's some battery, that are battery powered. You can That's use okay. it on a plane. On a plane That's what I'm saying. You use it on a plane, you know, and they might be maybe only like 12 inches long. And then there's bigger ones. We, we also have two bigger ones that are maybe about 20 inches mm -hmm. long that have a much larger UV light. Dr. Bones, feel free to jump in. You're the one that gets to, you know, if your voice is going, we, we totally want to respect that. So, yeah. You know what? We'll yeah, just cool. continue on with the supplies for this particular thing. And then when we're mm -hmm. finished with those, you know, we'll let, we'll, you know, kind of let you know, you know. Okay. That's the supplies. Perfect. We'll, we'll just talk until Perfect. we're finished with supplies because I know you have more. There's actually been some uh, good scientific studies done with UV lights. Um, not only killing viruses, but actually sterilizing instruments. That's how good and effective they are. So when I think of preps for uh, a room that would have, you know, nasty viruses floating around, I think having that portable ultraviolet light would be something really, really helpful. Of course, you don't want to hold it, you know, 20 inches above the surface. You're going to need to get nice and close to the surface to actually do good. So having a portable battery-powered ultraviolet light, again, they do sell them under mm -hmm. the bed bug. In wands. And, and so it's, it's called essential. a wand. It's called a UV wand. UVC wand. With what you can, UVC wand, I'm sorry. And another thing that I would think about, if you did have some access to electricity, let's say, you know, the whole world is not collapsed yet, uh, in the words of Glenn, collapse. <laughs> but you do have some electricity. Um, also consider having air purifiers, not necessarily with the HEPA filters, but go for the ones with the UV lights in them. Again, if you have those circulating in the room with the people who are sick, it might cut down on the load in the air and decrease the risk of the healthcare worker right, the who's coming in. Plus, it might move a little air because you don't want stale air. We talk about barriers for these rooms, but that doesn't mean you're duct taping the windows, folks. The person still needs some fresh air. We're not trying to suffocate them, okay? They still need some fresh air. You're trying to keep the barrier between sick people and healthy people. But if they're in a room, open up the windows, they need fresh air. But that filter might help also. Interestingly enough, you should consider duct taping the vents. Yes. That go to other rooms in the house in order to decrease the viral load that goes through those vents to the rest of the folks in the house. I just wanted to mention that uh, with regards to the UVC-1, I mean, a lot of people will look at it and say, oh, that doesn't really work. Well, in the Journal of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, they took instruments that were dirty, that needed to be cleaned. They put them in a soup of essentially seven different bacteria, and then they hung them up with hangers, uh, with coat hangers, and they passed the UV wand after cleaning them with something called HibaCleanse, which is, is a good antiseptic. So using an antiseptic called HibaCleanse 
and then passing a UVC wand over uh, over them and around them for about 45 seconds actually cut down the amount of bacteria uh, on the instruments by 100%. In other words, it, there was no Amazing. visible bacteria seen when they evaluated it afterwards. Yeah, and that's the kind of practical stuff you know that we love having you guys on for. By the way, you were describing a sick room, and one of the uh, shows we were on, RV Prepper, we talked about the use of recreational vehicles as quarantine zones. Now, the downside of that is most have fabric, and you were talking about hard surfaces, so it would not do well in that category. But as far as being a, a shelter that is completely isolated from the rest of the house or office or building or whatever it is, you know, there's that. And so that might be a thing. And there are a lot of RVs out there that are inexpensive and maybe maybe they uh you know they're not really towable um but you've got a little shelter it you know it could it could work for that so there's that consider rvs yeah that's a good idea the way that people die from most of these diseases most of these pandemic type diseases interestingly enough is from dehydration due to extreme nausea vomiting diarrhea sometimes bleeding this is something that we saw in Ebola, that the Ebola death rate at the beginning of the epidemic there in 2014 was about 65%. It dropped to about 40%. I think that the reason for that was because they were able to hydrate people, and they didn't have the ability to hydrate people. Of course, most preppers aren't going to have access to IV hydration because intravenous fluids, even just normal saline salt water is by prescription, but it's important to have some oral rehydration salts you can see some on Amy's store, to, or to make your own oral rehydration solution at home. You can easily do that with each liter of water, six to eight teaspoons of sugar, one to one, one half to one teaspoon of salt, one quarter or a half teaspoon of uh, salt substitute for the potassium in it. You, know, you can find salt substitute by the salt in the supermarket, and maybe a pinch of sodium bicarbonate. And if you have flavoring, that also would be fine to add that. And you add that to one liter of water. Now, if you're rehydrating a child or an infant, I want you to put this mixture in two liters of water. In my opinion, it's going to be bad water and contaminated food that's going to cause the majority of the deaths that are not associated with hostile intentions in survival settings. Yeah, and once again, this is a, a practical, low-cost thing, and uh, as much as I love guns, getting that seventh AR-15 is not going to help you get through a pandemic, right? Am I right? <laughs> if you're an octopus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so if somebody, um, you've mentioned UVB lights, and you've mentioned you know um, oral um, IV sorts of things, electrolytes, if uh, that's what I would call them. If somebody is taking a list here and they're going to go to Costco or Sam's Club, I guess they're different things in different parts of the country. What's a shopping list people should put together um, for basically being as pandemic ready as possible, especially with some of the things like the the hydration and the simple stuff that you guys mentioned? Let's see. I, I'm envisioning ourselves walking into Costco with our giant, enormous cart that they have. Um, I would get tarps. Uh, they have good prices on tarps, and I think they have them uh, more more than one to a pack. I would get tons of batteries, uh, lighting. They have um, those press-on lights, like for closets, that you don't need to hook up to electricity, and you can stick those anywhere. You could add extra lighting, say, to that RV that you had. 
that you couldn't plug in, but you needed some extra lights. So uh, lighting, including flashlights, um, any kind of lanterns they have, I would tend to stay away from the kerosene type lamps and go for the batteries. Uh, make sure they do have uh, rechargeable batteries. They're more expensive, unfortunately. So I would go for the rechargeables and make sure you get the <laughs> recharger. Um, let's see, I believe they have marine batteries there. So I am a big proponent of solar panels. Every once in a while, you'll find some solar panels there. I know uh, Gold Zero had a special one and they had all of their products and I just went insane there <laughs> buying all of that. So did I, Amy. Yeah. So did I, Amy. It was Isn't like, that... it was, it was crazy. It was awesome. <laughs> but you can make deep cycle marine batteries there and putting a battery bank together and a solar system is much easier than you think. It's the University of YouTube and I hold a master's degree from the University of YouTube. <laughs> so I feel pretty good about myself. Hey, I, always, I keep I going with the Costco. Yes. Yeah, we're talking yeah, Costco's about Costco. Awesome. We're talking Costco's about Costco. Awesome. Don't forget to get uh, lots of loperamide or, or modium with, as an anti-diarrheal bleach. You can get that uh, eight drops per gallon in uh, water. Double it if the water is very cloudy or, or very suspicious for being bad. Uh, if it's six percent bleach, if it's eight point two five percent bleach, just six drops per gallon would be appropriate. And, Big um, things of baking soda. I don't know, do they have cool shocks? They don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't think they've ever had. They cool do shock. on. It's it's seasonal, and I looked at that. Golly, we're tracking. It's so crazy. We have like the same brains. Well, you know more stuff than I do about this stuff. But anyway, um, pool <laughs> shock, and it was like it was like seventy bucks for pounds of pool shock, and I looked at the thing, and pool shock is is basically pool um, chlorine stuff to to make basically bleach. And then to treat water. And I looked at it and I said, whoa, I don't think this has ever happened before. That's too much stuff for me to buy, which I don't say very often when it comes to prepping supplies. But, yeah, pool shock, you can get um, on Amazon a one-pound thing of it. And you, you put it in a little bit of water and it makes bleach. And then you can treat stuff. You can treat instruments. Right. You could, you know, wash clothing. You can treat water. You can't have enough bleach. And one of the things about – and correct me if I'm wrong, guys – liquid bleach, it – I don't think it expires, but it loses its effectiveness after a while, so you need to rotate it. But pool shock powder would not be the same because pool shock powder is basically powdered bleach, if you will. Let me give you the formula that, that you can, that you can use. So pool shock is calcium hypochlorite. Household bleach is sodium hypochlorite. So it is a little bit different than using, of course, uh, just regular bleach to try to help disinfect water. What you need to do with pool shock is you dissolve one heaping teaspoon of the granules, that's about a quarter of an ounce, and two gallons of water, and that makes, I'm going to call it bleach, but let's call it a, it's a chlorine solution. And that is what you're going to use to disinfect water. And to disinfect water, you take that mixture, you add one pint of that solution to about every 12 gallons, 12.5 gallons of water, and that disinfects it. It equals to about one part of this solution that you just made to 100 parts of water. And if you want to remove the chlorine odor, just pour it back and forth from one clean container to another and wait at least 30 minutes before drinking so that it can work its magic. All right. And that's, by the way, not just my opinion. That's from water.epa.gov. All right. So let's go back to our Costco uh, fun shopping day. Um, I would also, and this is something people would probably skip at the beginning, is you see all those office supplies? We were talking about whiteboards earlier. 
and I would grab some whiteboards. Not only can you document the person's, let's say, vital signs and their symptoms, but you can have plans. You know, when did the person eat? What was their input? What was their output, which is what, what they're drinking and what's coming out? You know, to be able to have this signage on the outside, you could also put this on the inside. If you don't necessarily want to walk into the room, the person could write something to you and erase it as a message. I'm hungry. Soup, please. Can I have more water? So that you don't constantly have to be going in there having the person talk to you, which then, of course, exhales viruses into the air, and then you speak to them and maybe you're inhaling something. So um, whiteboards, markers, uh, pens and paper uh, and pencils, things that the person, you know, if, if they want to draw or do, um, I don't know, write something. Give them something to do. A deck of cards would be good for, um, you know, again, keep their, their brain occupied. And then, of course, filing stuff because you need to keep files on what's going on with the person. As if you were a hospital because this is a patient. And if you have more than one health care worker, you need to communicate what's going on with this person so that everyone is on the same page when they come to take over the shift of taking care of that person. So I think a lot of people forget about hospital filing things and, and occupying the person's uh, brain. So again, little games, things that maybe have plastic pieces that can be washed, uh, plastic covered, playing cards, so those kind of things. And then of course, when you round around to the medicine, I would basically get almost like one of everything. <laughs> you know, you're getting your Tylenol, you're getting your ibuprofen, you're getting your Imodium, um, maybe somebody might need a stool softener someday. So you just really kind of clean out the medicine area in Costco. Um, you can never have too much. I, w I would just have to say that. So I love how we've gone from pandemics to whiteboards, but it's still the same thing. It's like whiteboards in a pandemic by Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, right? But it, ma it makes total sense. Another example of prepping 2.0 in the sense of that next level, not only are you just having enough MREs and, you know, AK-47s, you're now, you've got a whiteboard so you can treat people and you can have rotating healthcare workers and all of this other stuff. This is precisely why you guys are on the show is because it is that next level and it's so easy to prepare for. Everything we're talking about is low cost and, you know, just do it. I love the shopping list. Anything else on the shopping list besides, speaking of seasonal things, their pumpkin pies with like three cans of whipped cream are absolutely amazing. Um, apparently, portion control is like a thing that needs to be considered, but not really when it comes to pumpkin pie. But, you know, anything else at Costco? Uh, well, I mean, besides uh, all the medical supplies, I mean, literally, you should just get a ton. They have, they have gauze. They have Band-Aids. They, they have so much. You need to just get medical supplies, medical supplies, medical right. supplies. You can never, ever have enough. Um, I want to mention. I want to mention first that if what they can't get there, they can get from you at store.doomandbloom.net. Oh, you're sweet, honey. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> for food wise. Shameless plug. I know he's so sweet. <laughs> you know, get a chicken noodle soup. Hey, what works with people who have viruses? We all know mom's recipe: chicken noodle soup. You might not be able to have some chickens running around your area, but you can have some canned chicken noodle soup. Crackers um, definitely are something I stock up a lot on. Um, 
you know, those, those kind of canned goods, the proteins, you know, I'm sure you've gone over food before, but Costco is awesome. Yeah. And it's, there's more than pumpkin pie there, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Mm, pumpkin pie. <laughs> <laughs> it is November when we're recording this, so it may be on my mind. Um, any, any other thoughts you guys have? This has been fantastic. Well, I've got to say that you just have to have a plan of action. And you know, everybody's got the beans, everybody's got the bullets, but you know what? All that's not going to be worth a hill of beans, and you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot if you don't have the bandages. So for goodness sake, have medical supplies for pandemics. Of course, you're going to want to have personal protection gear. You want to have N95 masks. You want to have gowns. You want to have Oh, aprons. yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Biohazard have, stuff. Right, exactly. You want to have gloves. Uh, uh, nitrile gloves are the best type of gloves. There's a big epidemic of, of latex allergies in this country. And so therefore, uh, I think nitrile would be better. It'd be hypoallergenic and most people should have a good supply of those. If you believe that a pandemic is going to be the event that causes society to unravel, well, you better have lots of gloves, lots and lots of gloves, as well as galvanations and masks. Now, speaking of masks, just a real quick, quick hint for everyone. The surgical masks, which are the ones that look usually blue or green, and they'll either tie behind the ears or they might have elastic. Those are the really cheap ones. You can get a ton of those for not much money. Those are the ones you want to use on the sick person who is coughing. It will physically stop the, the saliva or the, the cough droplets. droplets from being thrown across the room or a sneeze even. So if you're going to go into the room, make sure that the person who is sick puts on the surgical mask before you walk in. Just while you're in there, they can take it off after you leave. You will put on the N95, also called a respirator. That filters out anything that might escape from the person or who that might have been floating in the air prior from you breathing it in. So it's your protection from inhaling anything. And you make sure it is right. fit properly. There's usually a, a metal... Um, strip across the nose. You want to pinch that so it's tight on the nose. You want to make sure that the mask is across your cheek, not tucked mm -hmm. out, and also underneath your chin, even into your neck. And when you breathe in, test it before you go in the patient's room, it, the cheeks of the mask should, should suck in a little bit. Right. It should not be easy for you to inhale because you want to make sure the air is going through the mask and not through a side area that is not attached to your skin tightly. We go through how to put a mask on appropriately and plus how to don and how to doff all personal protection gear in Alton's antibiotics and infectious disease. Exactly. It's, it's not an easy procedure and this is uh, partially the reason why the nurses got sick in Texas. Yeah, they were, had very lax Because they did not know how to put on and take off these items without contaminating themselves. But we learn from our mistakes. Yes, luckily, we do. Luckily, these nurses are healthy. No, that's great. And I think you guys, and if I'm wrong, I'm going to feel like a dope here. You guys have some YouTube videos up too. And is that another way people could learn some of this stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have uh, the DR Bones, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy channel. And we have, uh, lucky to have I think a YouTube lot of is followers, just DR Bones podcast. I think it's our email. No, but if you go to Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, 
I, It'll show up. Nurse Amy. I know. It you're does the, show you're up. the star. I'm just the pretty face. They just here. used our email when I did this, <laughs> the special URL for it. But yeah, if you look up uh, Doom and Bloom or you look up uh, DR Bones podcast or you look up Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, any of those will go to the YouTube channel. Right. We, so have we have lots lot, and lots of, a right. lot of demonstration. Um, I have at least three different, maybe four, I think I have four different tourniquet videos. So depending on, you're not sure what tourniquet you want to get, I should tell you everything. I'm not a person who can do, can do a two minute uh, video in case you can tell how long I like to talk. I have too much. <laughs> but when I do a tourniquet video, don't expect to sit there for two minutes. Expect to sit there for 10 to 15 minutes. Because I'm going to tell you everything and I'm going to show you how to put it on yourself and someone else and all the parts and why those parts are there and what they're doing. And there's also a great video for anyone who's considering tourniquet, the 10 critical principles of tourniquet use. And the 10 is a number 10, not, not right now. Yeah, so we've got over 200. That videos. one is really important. No mm -hmm. matter what tourniquet you want, that is the video you need to watch because there are, are good ways and bad ways to put on and use a tourniquet and, you know, do I loosen it? No, you don't loosen it. But I talk about all that in the video. You know, and another reason to have community, which is one of our big prepping 2.0 topics, is hopefully there'll be some, you know, a nurse or two or somebody else who knows what they're doing. Don't rely on that, by the way. Learn it yourself watch you guys videos right and then learn it yourself but another reason to have community is to have people enough people especially specialized people or semi-specialized people as the case may be to um, take care of the sick and by the way if you're concerned about the caregiver getting infected there's probably going to be a bunch of prisoners and uh, that's what they get to do they get to go take care of the infected and if they die who cares and yeah I said that I said that out loud <laughs> and it's on the after show it's on the after show so you know what I mean but um, maybe it's a bad idea entrusting a, a vulnerable person to a prisoner that's probably a terrible idea so uh, maybe don't do that but um, no it, it emphasizes the need for community in the sense of having lots of people who can do stuff who are trusted and vetted um but hey i mean don't count on that i mean that's what we're all about is is adapting and preparing for austere conditions and uh don't count on having like you two like living next to you right i mean that would be pretty cool <laughs> i think you guys would be fun at a barbecue too with of cocktails and all kinds of stuff i think you guys would be uh, very fun to have live next door but um anyway. oh, you're, you're funny i tell you if there was a film crew in this um this house of ours uh, everyone would be quite entertained. <laughs> <laughs> so and yes, cool. at a barbecue, as long as you give me a couple margaritas, we're good to go. <laughs> I thought that might be the case. <laughs> well, good. Well, hey, you guys have anything to add? Um, and if not, you know, we, we've really enjoyed having you. We've learned something. Our listeners will learn something, especially here in the after show where it came down to like shopping lists and everything like that. I bet, I bet our patreons in the comments about this show will say things like they said about our previous guest uh about how helpful it is so anything to add and then we'll let you guys go and we're going to by the way listeners um shelby and i are going to have a, a spot we're going to do on um uh, a topic called is it just us and we're talking about are we the only ones that think something bad's coming because we think america's messed up and we're sort of almost hoping for it and because we're being really rational we're testing ourselves we're not just gonna 
you know, float along with emotion. You know, we're going to critically question our own emotions. And it's it's a pretty cool topic, but um, we'll do that um, in studio without the, the Skype connection. So anyway, that's still coming up. But anything you guys would like to add, um, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy? Just basically a big thank you for having us on your show. And we're going to make sure that as many people as possible wind up getting medically prepared. Our mission is very simple, to put a medically prepared person in every family. Absolutely. I just want to mention you were talking about uh, having a lot of folks. Make sure everyone cross-trains. I think people get so um, isolated in in certain uh, topics. You know, someone says, oh, I'm the tactical guy. Well, you know what? The tactical guy needs to learn how to plant some garden seeds, too. And, you know, and how often it needs to be watered and what the diseases are on that plant so he can grow food. So everyone cross-train. Make sure you're not just isolating yourself with one particular topic. I think you guys are really great. You're, you've got a broad sense of all the different things. Uh, this is how... Uh, Dr. Bones and I are, we've learned, we've got our ham radio licenses, we've done the solar, we, we just go for every topic and practice, practice, practice everyone. And if you're interested in how to stop bleeding, we have lots and lots of information on YouTube. And it's a good thing for anyone who is into that tactical area to learn how to stop bleeding from the bullet that might come out of their gun. Oh, and if I can if I can add to that, Nurse Amy, I totally agree. Glenn and I have taken a, a, a basic stop the bleed course, and and um, we have I don't know a dozen tourniquets in any in, in on our property for that very reason. And we took that class, and it's still not enough. So, totally agree. And I and I'm going to just put it out there. I'm going to see if down the road we can have you come on and talk more about that kind of thing, that um, emergency sort of first. I always say this. You are your first responder. The 12 minute, 30 minute, potentially long wait for the person to come help you is um, can be a life changer. And that's in prison conditions. That's not even a collapse situation. How you can be a help to someone now. And I know I just opened up a topic, so I'm not gonna. We won't. But I'd love to have you on because that's the that's the what we're seeing in our headlines. That's the mass shooting. That's the there's yeah. been a catastrophe. There's been the car accident. You could be a lifesaver now. So right. we'll have you on later for that if that if that sounds good. No, that sounds wonderful. That is another thing that I'm absolutely passionate about. Um, and we would love to. We're, we are certified stop the bleed instructors also, uh, but we go past that because we know that there may be situations where you, you're not just stopping it when the ambulance comes, but you have to stop it and now you have to take care of it. So we can not only talk about the emergent, uh, modern medicine still exists, but going further than that where the modern medicine doesn't exist. So we can delve deeper into that topic too. But we'd love to come back. Thank you so much. Oh, heck yeah. We're, we're going to love having you back. And if you're ever in our area, we're going to drink some margaritas because that's pretty good stuff. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you for the time. And uh, thank you for letting us be on your show. We loved having you on our show. And we'll stay in touch for sure. You're All so right. welcome. Have a great Thank you. Day. You guys be safe.
Hi, I'm Joe Alden, MD of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 600 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. Along with my wife, nurse practitioner Amy Alden, we're the authors of the Amazon bestseller, The Survival Medicine Handbook, with over 200 five-star reviews. A disaster can strike at any time, and the ambulance may not always be heading in your direction. We've got an entire line of medical kits, supplies, and educational resources that can help you deal with injuries and illness and everything from a wilderness hike to the aftermath of a major disaster. Check them out at our shop at store.doomandbloom.net. In a disaster, you'll be glad you did. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.